Hello, and welcome to Grapevine, the podcast where we untangle the stories that shape private and public discourse. I'm Jasmine Hall. I teach courses in literature, film, and other storytelling media at Elms College. And this is my co-host, William Wright, a freelance storyteller. We share an interest in uncovering the often surprising ways in which human perceptions are influenced by the stories we hear. In this episode, we're going to start a multi-part series on American narratives, which in a way sort of had a prequel last week when we were talking about uh, Western or cowboy heroes. Although pretty much all of our podcasts have been prequels to this in a way, because m- many of the things that we've talked about in our previous podcasts are certainly part of Western narratives, uh, Western culture, but obviously also American culture, too. I mean, wouldn't you agree? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, although sometimes I, I feel like I have to, when I was saying Western narratives there, I guess I meant American West rather than oh, Western right. <laughs> versus Eastern like, narratives. Like the John, like the John Wayne movie. Like we the John Wayne about. Western narrative. Right. And, and everybody, if you haven't heard it, you should go back and listen to it. And yes, it is a prerequisite. Don't even try to listen to this podcast until you listen to the other one. Without listening to that one first. (laughs) Well, that one did um, uh, actually inspire me to think about recording some of this. Um, I'm also teaching a course for the first time in American literature, so uh, I'm coming to some of this stuff brand new and, and finding some surprising things, things that I hadn't realized before. And then there was a kind of direct connection because um, I was reading John Smith's account uh, both of his um, uh, what he did in Virginia which includes the Pocahontas story and also Mm -hmm. his account of New England and in both of those there's a kind of heroism which reminded me of the cowboy heroism Um, so that was one connection I was going to make that John Smith talks about? Well, the, more that he embodies than that he talks about. Um, oh, okay. okay. That he really makes himself, uh, it, it sort of reminded me of the opening line of David Copperfield, where um, David Copperfield says something like, uh, whether I am to be the hero of my story or not, um, we shall have hmm. to wait and see. Well, John Smith is not taking any chances. <laughs> <laughs> He makes himself the hero of his story. <laughs> All right, everybody. John Smith's the name. I know that name doesn't sound very unique to you, but I'm going to make it a name of distinction right now. <laughs> Too bad that didn't work. Everyone still uses John Smith when they go to the hotel right. and they don't want to know who they are. Nice try, though, John. Good effort. But it... it there's something very American about that, about that kind of um, fabulous um, impulse or making yourself into a legend, it's like, which, again, is very much like uh, cowboy stories. Well, yeah, that's interesting because if, if you would have asked me, hey, give me some examples of some self-promoters in early America, I wouldn't have gone that early. No, no. Going, you know, Buffalo Bill. I right, right. You know. Oh, yeah. No, he very much 
is, and maybe that maybe that's surprising. Maybe that's one of those things that people don't really realize about him. I I knew a little bit before I was reading that I knew the Pocahontas story that we often see, say in the Disney movies and stuff. I I knew that was false, but I didn't realize actually how false a lot of other stuff about him was. <laughs> so yeah, he he's a really good self. Valorizer, I guess you would say. Well, that's that's about as early America as you can get. Yeah, yeah. This is um, 1607 is about is when his book about Virginia and New England was published. So one one of the things that I want to say right off the bat about the book is that when it was published, it was actually credited to uh, someone named Thomas Studley. And then later, John Smith writes part of it more directly, and uh, he actually speaks with an I, first person, uh, when he's talking about New England. But in the section about Virginia, there's always uh, this character, John Smith, who we hear about in the third person as if this other person is writing it. And the person is supposed to be Thomas Studley. And then there were a couple of other people's names who were later added. But it turns out that Thomas Studley died early in the year 1607, which is when most of the events that are recorded here take place. So he couldn't have experienced the things that he's supposedly writing about. It's pretty much assumed that these are all things that John Smith himself wrote but he wrote about himself in the third person and published this section as if it was written by this other guy, uh, Studley. And um, you, know, you can tell why, because you know, in the third person, everything that John Smith does is great. You know, he, he saves the colony a number of times. Um, and that wouldn't come across quite the same way if he said, I saved the colony. Now, Captain Smith saved, saved the colony. So how do we know what is true or false? I mean, how do we know what is historically accurate in this account or not? Or do we just presume it's not and just use it as an interesting piece of literature? Or what do we do with that? Um, we do know some facts, um, which I can go over. But um, I think it's also very interesting just to look at the way that he tells the story. Yeah. Right, it is. So, well, I'll try to give you (laughs) his early life. Actually, it's the same problem. It's hard to tell how much of it is truth or fiction. But um, actually, let me start by giving a little bit of context about uh, the way in which the settlement that he was with was a change from the way that English settlements had gone before. There really only had been the one in Roanoke before. And as you know, the one in Roanoke had failed. Yes. Um, Famously yeah. so. Famously failed. And um, that one was uh, organized by Sir Walter Raleigh. And again, thinking about heroic models, I mean, Walter Raleigh is definitely a heroic even a chivalric model. We, you know, we think about the picture of him putting his coat down, right, for 
um, the queen to avoid stepping in the puddle, you know, that story. Um, But he's a heroic model of the aristocracy, uh, not of the common man, right? So he, again, sort of chivalry, uh, the nobleman who's going to do the right thing. Sure. And that model of exploration and colonization is kind of like you have the nation represented by this hero who's a member of the nobility. And he goes out and he explores and he conquers and he settles the land. And that model where you have kind of this combination of the individual but who is a... uh, an aristocratic individual, and therefore represents the nation, so it's also royalty. That model of settling the United States, you can really see that very much in the way that Spain colonized, right? Sure. You you can think of all the famous explorers' names that you know who are Spanish. Yeah. So England tried that and it failed, And so after that failure, they changed their model of exploration and colonization. So instead of having something that was headed by a single individual who represented the government, this was replaced by companies um, of investors who were usually merchants. And they were the, the fronts for overseas expansion, for the most part, for English colonization. That's a very different model than the Spanish one, or even the French one, which is more single individuals going out to do sort of trapping and um, hunting. Right. So Smith was part of this um, new model. He was sent out as part of this uh, this company. And um, now just getting back into a little bit about his background, and again... Some of this uh, is, we know factually, but then some of it around the edges might be fictionalized. Um, We do know that when he was 13, he tried to join up with Sir Francis Drake. He was from a, a farming family, and Drake was running privateers against the Spanish. Mm. Um, when he was 16, he went to fight for the Dutch. Then he did join a privateer, and then after he joined a privateer, he was with the Austrian army. He was fighting the Turks, and he he had made for himself a coat of arms. So just remember, this guy is from a farm family. He's not a (laughs) member of the nobility. But but he did all these things, though. He did do all these things. Um, The coat of arms was three heads because... He apparently beheaded uh, three guys. He was fighting three Turks. Um, He was sold into slavery to a Turk after being captured in a battle. Uh, He escaped back to England, and by this time he was 24. Jeez. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So this is one of the reasons why he was chosen for this expedition, because they were looking for somebody who had a lot of military experience. But he also seems to have been, and now this is factual, he does seem to have been a troublemaker and have had a really bad temper. 
and on board the ship, he got into some kind of fight. He was placed under arrest, and when they landed, he was supposed to be executed. But upon arrival, they opened the letters which said, these are the people who are going to serve on the council. And he was one of the people who was supposed to serve on the council. So they had to, you know, X out the execution. <laughs> the very first execution had to be dropped because, right. and, and why is that? Because the guy was on the council. Yeah, he was, he was appointed to the council, so they couldn't really do that. Yeah, because, you know, the rules, <laughs> so, the rules can't apply the same to everybody. Right. That's interesting. Okay, so now, actually, I want to read um, a few things from the Virginia account, partly to give you a sense of how he talks about himself. Okay. This is, uh, here he's describing Captain Smith. Captain Smith, who by his own example, good words, and fair promises, set some to mow, others to bind thatch, some to build houses, others to thatch them, himself always bearing the greatest task for his own chair, so that in short time he provided most of them lodgings, neglecting any for himself. <laughs> I know, it's pretty funny, actually. Wow, that's... <laughs> and then this is shortly after that, he's talking about the president... By the president, he means um, the person who was appointed to run the colony. Um, and uh, let's see, at this point, I'm trying to remember. I think that it was Radcliffe. Um, but anyway, the president and Captain Archer, not long after, intended also to have abandoned the country. This is a whole bunch of people decide this is too hard. There are Indians, you know, it's scary. <laughs> Um, which project also was curbed and suppressed by Smith. So Smith keeps them, you know, there and doing what they're supposed to do. So, um, so when they were saying it was scary and everything, someone, someone stood up and said, if only there were someone here like John Smith. <laughs> oh, wait, there he is. Wait, there is. <laughs> okay. So now just to briefly uh, go over the the Pocahontas example. So I should say it's, they're not completely clear about whether this thing where he had his head put on a rock and was threatened with being beaten to death by um, the Indians, whether that was really true or not. One or you know, some historians say that they think actually what was going on was that this was an initiation ceremony that was supposed to be symbolic, and he never was in any real danger. Hmm. So it was supposed to symbolize his fictional death and rebirth because they were accepting him into the tribe. Hmm. But they don't know for certain. So anyway, he this is the account that he gives. I'm going to leave a little of it out, but first this is where he's talking about uh, Pocahontas. On either hand did sit a young wench of 16 or 18 years, 
and along on each side of the house two rows of men, and behind them as many women with all their heads and shoulders painted red, many of their heads bedecked with the white down of birds, but every one with something and a great chain of white beads about their necks. And then a little bit further down. Then as many as could laid hands on him, dragged him to them, and thereon laid his head, and being ready with their clubs to beat out his brains, Pocahontas, the king's dearest daughter, when no entreaty could prevail, got his head in her arms, and laid her own upon his to save him from death, whereat the emperor was contented that he should live to make him hatchets, and her bells, beads, and coppers, for they thought him as well of all occupations as themselves. So, he's allowed to live because Pocahontas saves him. And if you read that, you know, when he gives the earlier description, it says um, that there are these young women of 16 or 18 years there. So she seems to be one of them. Mm-hmm. And you kind of get this picture of something romantic, the king's dearest daughter, whom no entreaty could prevail, got his head in her arms, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, do you know how old Pocahontas was at the time? How old she really was? Yeah. No. So she was 11 or 12. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> um, so, there, yeah, so there's nothing romantic at all going on. Maybe she did uh, save him, but she knew, she probably knew him because um, even before this time that he had been taken by the Indians, she used to come into the uh, colony to play with um, some of the boys who were in the colony. Hmm. And, oh, and then the other thing that's that's odd about the whole thing and, and somewhat suspicious is that uh, apparently, in the account that he gives about escaping from the Turks, okay. he's also rescued by a young woman in fairly similar circumstances. Huh. So Is she also 11 years old? <laughs> I don't think so. No. No, that's part, that's part of the, uh, that's part of them making it up, right? To make her older and... Right, right. I see. <laughs> okay, and then, when he comes back in, this is the end of the section, or towards the end of the section about Virginia. Uh, what really happened was, when he returned, he was put on trial because, um, several of the men in his charge had gotten killed and he was being held responsible for their deaths. Mm. And again, he was saved from execution by, I believe, some ship had arrived, and he received new orders. But it's told, again, very differently in his account. This is his account. Some, no better than they should be, had plotted with the president the next day to have him put to death by the Levitical law for the lives of Robinson and Emery, pretending the fault was his that had led them to their ends. But he quickly took such order with such lawyers that he laid them by the heels till he sent some of them prisoner for England. <laughs> so, I like the laid them by their heels. Yeah, I, I don't know. Line. I kind of like the other ver- that version better. It just sounds so much more exciting and... Yes, it is much more exciting. <laughs> I mean, you, you got it. To, to, to people like that, 
like uh, like the people I was thinking of in in the West who did the same thing to sort of uh, improve their reputation. You got to give it to them. The stories they told might have been false, but they sure did have some style. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I mean, definitely, he does have style. And to close off in talking about him, I wanted to read from his description of New England because, um, and he's basically he's a salesman, and this really is what he's strongly doing in description of New England. He's trying to sell people on the idea of coming to the New World. But you can tell that there are these ideas about, um, you know, what life, what America is supposed to be as opposed to England in his account here. And, and maybe once we're done talking about Smith, we could just talk a little bit about what are some of the implications for the picture we get of America that comes from Smith or, or of the American hero that comes from him? So in a description of New England, this is how it begins. And I just love this opening sentence. Who can desire more content that hath small means or but only his merit to advance his fortune? than to tread and plant that ground he hath purchased by the hazard of his life. That, that's just a, a great sentence. Yeah, it really is. Um, so the, uh, that's really sort of the picture he has of himself. He's somebody, he's not from the aristocracy. He's from some poor family, and he says, you know, what what is coming to the United States about? You know, you don't have very much... You don't have a way to advance your fortune back home, but you can get it all here if you're willing to risk your life and be a hero. Hmm. And then the other things that he lists later in the opening paragraph that you will come here to do, what can he do less hurtful to any or more agreeable to God than to seek to convert those poor savages to know Christ mm. and humanity whose labors with discretion will triple requite thy charge and pains? What so truly suits with honor and honesty as the discovering things unknown, erecting towns, peopling countries, informing the ignorant, reforming things unjust, teaching virtue, and gaining to our native mother country a kingdom to attend her, finding employment for those that are idle because they know not what to do. And that's not only the picture of what he, what I think uh, Americans thought of themselves as doing, coming to people a country, right? Mm-hmm. Although it was already peopled. Mm-hmm. But that list, it's like, what Americans still think of themselves as doing. Yes, every single We're going to go to other countries and inform the ignorant, yeah, yeah. reform things unjust, teach virtue, I've, find employment for those thinking, that are idle. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing while you were reading it. I was thinking, when was this written? <laughs> I know. <laughs> this, sounds like, this sounds like a speech at, a, at the Democratic and or Republican National Convention or something. I mean... I mean, either, either yeah. you could hear this this very kind of speech coming from either party to really rouse the supporters, all of that stuff that America is supposed to do and supposed to be. It's like right there. 
Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. It really is. But but here's another interesting thing about that. I was thinking while you were reading it is, I hadn't thought of it before, but based on what you were saying before, it sounds like John Smith is saying, "Hey, all you people who are nobodies, all of the stuff you usually equate the nobility and the aristocracy is doing where you're from, you can come here and do that yourself." Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, and. The kind of self-valorizing, it sort of fits perfectly with that because if you're a nobody, come here and make yourself into whatever you want. Yeah, but specifically the list, I mean, it, just about everything on that list is things that back in Europe, in England, you know, you would expect the the aristocracy to be doing for everybody. Right, that's exactly true. Finding right. jobs so, for everybody, uh, yep. taming the savage, uh, you know. That, that, teaching virtue. Yeah, teaching right, virtue. All the, right. like, this is what gentlemen do. Yeah. Uh, you know, patronage. This is, so it moves from, exactly, it moves from that kind of model of Sir Walter Raleigh going out and exploring to John Smith, you know, who's just a farmer. Um, but he's going to, He's going to do all of those noble things. And I think that's the, you know, we are not, um, even though, you know, a lot of the country was also founded by um, Spain and by France and by the Dutch, but I think the strongest influence on our narrative comes from stuff like this. Well, yeah, absolutely, because, I mean, when the United States finally became the United States, it, you know... It was a collection of specifically English colonies. I mean, as you said, like the Dutch helped found the like you know New Amsterdam before it was New York and Albany and um, and and the French, of course. Um, the the influence of uh, French founding in in the East is everywhere, and and the Spanish, especially in the South. But but certainly the core values that you get in the United States comes from what was also the core culture in terms of the colonies, and that was decidedly uh, English. Right. So I think, I mean, I, I could go on about Smith, but I, I think that's probably, that's a good place to end. That's really that, fascinating stuff. Really fascinating. Well, actually, no, I lie. I do want to, I do want to mention one other thing because it's a good contrast to the reality of what William Bradford says um, in settling New England. So Smith is also talking about New England, and he talks about how bountiful nature is Mm -hmm. in New England, and um, especially fishing. says, he is a very bad fisher that cannot kill in one day with his hook and line one, two, or three hundred cod which dressed and dried if they be sold there for ten shillings the hundred, though in England they will be they will give more than twenty, may not both the servant, the master, and merchant be well content with this gain? Hmm. So he just talks about, like, there's food everywhere. There's <laughs> fish and there's game and, you know, and then just uh, contrasting that with uh, Bradford, who um, was with the um pilgrims right plymouth colony and the plymouth colony yeah. um and talks about you know coming and there there being nothing to eat 
and how hard it was to survive um, the first winter. Mm-hmm. I think at one point he says that they only had like, uh, oh yeah, here here it is. This isn't quite about the food, but um, in two or three months' time, half of their company died. Um, this is the pilgrims, especially in January and February, being the depth of winter and wanting houses. So, of the original 100 and odd persons, scarce 50 remained. And of these, in the time of most distress, there was but six or seven sound persons, who to their great commendation, be it spoken, spared no pains night nor day, but with abundance of toil and hazard of their own health, fetched them wood, made them fires, dressed them meat, made their beds, washed their loathsome clothes, clothed and unclothed them, in a word did all the homely and necessary offices for them, which dainty and queasy stomachs cannot endure to hear named. Hmm. Um, Yeah, so... That's quite a contrast (laughs) from what... um, Quite a bleak, right. But, I mean, we know some things about that colony that that, uh, even John Smith was participating... With right, where it was not well, the Virginia colony he doesn't uh, picture in glowing terms that way. But in but the <laughs> New England picture, it's like, oh wow, everyone should come here, and um, and the Pilgrims hey. actually, the Pilgrims actually came deliberately came over with some people who weren't of their faith necessarily. I mean, my understanding is that. Um, on the Mayflower, there were plenty of people who, who they brought along specifically for their skills, and so that so that this thing you're describing actually wouldn't happen. They wanted people who could build houses and so on. Right, right. So, so it's it's not as if because some historians will point out that some of the uh, colonies were founded by a bunch of people who didn't know how to do anything, <laughs> so they wouldn't have known if there was food all around them because they just weren't really prepared for where they were going or what they were going to experience. But but the pilgrims, as I understand it, were kind of forward-thinking in, in who they were going to take with them. Some of the people were not, well, were Anglicans, and the pilgrims were separatists, of course. Yeah. And they brought some some Anglicans, well, they, they brought whoever they thought would be helpful, and some of them happened to be Anglicans. And so, and that caused some uh, problems on the ship and at, at the colony too. But, but it wasn't uh, just because they got there and, they didn't realize what resources were around them. They, it was actually a hard, hard place to live. Yeah, yeah. A- actually, I did want to, and you sort of mentioned it. This was um, one of the things that I had read that I I really hadn't realized before. I read this to teach it. I didn't realize the strength of the difference between the Pilgrims and the Puritans. And there was actually quite a bit of animosity um, between the two groups. See, I, I didn't, I didn't uh, realize that they had very much to do with each other at all. Eventually, they did after the Mass Bay Colony was established. Mm. So the there were there was a lot of friction between Plymouth and the Mass Bay Colony. But I, I, under, uh, I also understand that 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 might surprise people uh, in popular notions but i'm not sure what popular notions are of the pilgrims and puritans i mean it, frankly all i ever really understood was that they're 
they're different. A lot of people don't even realize that much that that they're not the same people. They're not the same group. Uh, um, at some point, I think early in college, I understood what the religious, uh, di- well, more political differences than religious uh, were. But I, I don't think I've ever had an understanding of, is there some kind of popular perception about these two groups uh, aside from uh, confusing them for being the same? Or like, I think I read somewhere uh, while I was looking at some of the stuff that you sent me in preparation for this podcast that that some people look at the Puritans as being these sort of, well, because they were associated with the witch trials and whatnot, right? That they're Right, they were, that's true. That they're really sort of bad, you know, represent everything bad about religion and, and, and uh, superstition and everything, but the pilgrims are painted in a little bit softer tones because of the whole Thanksgiving myth and... Is that? Yeah, right? although um, I, they did not have a completely friendly relationship at first with the Indians either. No, that's right. Um, but um, but I think, well, to me, the main thing is the, the fact that people really think of them as being the same. Mm, okay. And um, people think of the whole, uh, you know, when they, you know, when I talk, to people about the, the founding fathers or what were they like and what values did they bring to the country and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. People are always talking about the pilgrim story. Mm, yeah. um, they're not talking about the Puritans. Mm. And it's as if, you know, the Puritan side of it is kind of forgotten for the most part, but it it's raised sometimes um when it's convenient, but the fact that these really stood for completely different uh, views about the way uh, government should run or the relationship between um, church and state, right, right. Uh, they, they had very, very different views of that. Um, in fact, that's probably the main thing that they had that was different. Um, so I think when people want to talk about, uh, you know, we escaped from... England and their oppression of freedom of thought and you know, we wanted our liberty, people talk about the pilgrims. Yeah. And then when they say, you know, and we should have a Christian religion in this country <laughs> because that's what the founding fathers wanted, then they're talking about the Puritans. Yeah, more or less, that's right. And they're not and they're they're not noticing that those two things are sort of antithetical notions. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we should spell some of those differences out just um, to clarify if people don't know them. Yeah, please but, do, um, because I mean, my knowledge yeah, the, of it is, is pretty superficial too, so I'm, I'm curious to know what you have to say about it. Well, you can, um, you can add in here too, but um, as you were saying, the, the pilgrims were separatists, so they were the ones who had actually left England and had gone to live for a time in Holland, but then they were afraid that their children were becoming Dutch. They were losing their Englishness. Yeah, well, we wouldn't want that. Right. Nobody no. wants their kid to become Dutch. <laughs> well, unless, unless you're Dutch. I'm not sure even some of them really <laughs> think it's a good idea. Um, so what separatism means there is that they did not believe that the Church of England was capable of reform from within. They wanted to completely separate from the Church of England. Right. Whereas the Puritans wanted to reform the Church of England. 
they also strongly believed in Calvin's model of each church makes its own covenant with God. And each person is in an individual partnership with God, and there should be no national church. But also predestination, right? Yeah, very very much so. Very, and uh, predestination and the idea of salvation through grace and not salvation through works, um, which came up uh, later in the Mass Bay Colony um, in the antinomian controversy. Right, because the uh, that controversy is about well, does grace absolve you from from the law? Like, do you you don't have to? Yeah, you're not obliged to keep uh, uh, the, the moral law because you're saved by grace. Right, and that, that right. that's of course uh, the mainstream uh, Christianity even today would dispute that notion. That I mean, it, it would it would insist that you're saved by grace, and there's nothing you can do to achieve grace or achieve heaven. However, that doesn't free you from having to be a good person. <laughs> you, know, it mean you can go out and kill people and steal. But to be fair, that's not what the um, that's not what the people on the other side of the argument were arguing. They weren't arguing that right. it's okay to steal or kill or anything. But but that was the dispute. Okay. Yeah. So um, I, I don't think that um, even in the antinomian controversy, I, I don't think they actually meant yeah that they could do bad things, but that um, they did, They weren't covered by, morality wasn't covered by um, the law. That's right. Yeah. And But that controversy erupted in the Mass Bay Colony, and um, they actually did uh, force several people to leave. Um, Anne Hutchinson, I remember, as the main one. But anyway, uh, getting back to the pilgrims, so uh, the pilgrims were much more in keeping with that line of thinking, that the line of thinking of um, uh, salvation through grace and through direct personal revelation of God, um, not through an authority. And I think that's very, very different than um, a lot of the way in which, uh, you know, religion is... Um, I guess uh, represented to us now as what the founding fathers were about. It's it's like no, we should all believe in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, the pilgrims, did not follow that idea at all. In contrast, um, the Puritans, uh, the Mass Bay Colony was founded by, and the governor was um, John Winthrop, and that one was like. Uh, John Smith's uh, company in Virginia was something that had gotten a royal charter. It was a company of merchants. Right. They were well, th- well off. John Winthrop was a wealthy lawyer. He wasn't a poor farmer, um, as the pilgrims were. Um, and they really set up something that was much more like a theocracy. Um, in fact, I have a quote from John Winthrop when he This is what he said about democracy. It is the meanest and worst of all forms of government. (laughs) And I I was saying there was some antagonism between the two uh, colonies, the one at Plymouth and the one at uh, at the Mass Bay Colony. 
and one of the main reasons was because uh, the Mass Bay Colony was afraid of losing their charter from the king. Um, they were royally supported, and so they didn't want to be associated with these heretics. Um, yeah, traitors. And, and traitors, these, these people who had committed treason. Right. Um, there were a couple of passages in Bradford that I was going to um, bring out, and then actually I was going to read a few things from Winthrop, um, from Winthrop's sermon, A Model of Christian Charity, because mm. it's that sermon from which there's the uh, quote, the um, city, on, city Upon a Hill, oh, which yeah. actually is originally... Uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's I think it's from Winthrop that you get politicians today quoting that, and most notably Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. who I think his biography was used that title. I'm pretty sure. So one of the things I was going to point out about Bradford, and just just to remind people, Bradford, we're talking about the Pilgrims. Um, was talking about the their attitude towards the Indians. So they came, they, they come ashore at some point, and um, they see, it says, uh, a quantity of clear ground where the Indians had formerly set corn in some of their graves. And then they see heaps of sand newly paddled with their hands, which they, digging up, found in them diverse fair Indian baskets filled with corn, and some in ears, fair and good of diverse colors, which seemed to them a very goodly sight, having never seen any such before. So their time limited them being expired, they returned to the ship and took with them part of the corn and buried up the rest, and so like the men from Eskal, carried with them of the fruits of the land, and showed their brethren brethren of which, and their return, they were marvelously glad, and their hearts encouraged. Hmm. So that that's like the men from Eskal is from Numbers 13.23. Okay. Scouts sent out by Moses to search the wilderness. Sure, sure. Um, so I, I found that interesting because... He's saying, you know, we went out into the wilderness and we brought back these provisions just like the scouts sent out by Moses. But these provisions are things that they, these are store, these are stores of corn that the Indians had put aside. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. That they're taking from them. They're just taking it. They're just taking it. Right. Mm. Uh, and here, he's still talking about the same thing. The corn and beans they brought away purposing to give them full satisfaction when they should meet. Um, and here is to be noted a special providence of God and a great mercy to this poor people that here they got seed to plant them corn the next year or else they might have starved for they had none nor any likelihood to get any till the season had been passed as the sequel did manifest. So God takes care of them by letting them steal things <laughs> from the Indians. Well, steal is a strong word, Jess. I mean, <laughs> well, he, de- he doesn't think of it that he absolutely does not think of it in that way at all. He does he does not think of it as stealing. He thinks of it as providential. The you know the land just gave up its bounty. It's 
again, like Smith talking about yeah. how there's this land to be peopled. Yeah. Uh, right? There aren't any people here already? And there are people to be landed, I guess. <laughs> there are people to be landed. I guess. That's what they're <laughs> saying. And then that was that whole incident was very interesting to me because very soon after that, um, some Indians come up. Um, all this while, the Indians came skulking about them. Skulking, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and would sometimes show themselves aloof, off. But when he approached near them, they would run away. And once, they stole away their tools where they had been at work and were gone to dinner. So the Indians steal tools from uh, Bradford's group. And then, short while after that, Samoset shows up and introduces them to Squanto. Uh, being after some time of entertainment and gifts dismissed, a while after he came again, and five more with him, and they brought again all the tools that were stolen away before, and made way for the coming of their great Sachem, called Massasoit. And then they make this uh, compact Massasoit, uh, agrees to these terms where neither he nor any of his people will do injury to them, and that goes on and on. But it just, that's so interesting to me that, you know, they never make up for the fact that they seal this corn, but as soon as the Indians make friends with them, you know, they bring the tools back. <laughs> and make peace. And make peace, yeah. Interesting. Okay, and then the the last thing I was going to mention, and this is somewhat of a tangent, but again, it is something people might not realize. And this goes back to what you were saying about how they brought other people with them who were not pilgrims. Yeah. So um, one of these people um, established uh, a place that he named, I think they, the pilgrims called it Mount Wollaston. But this man, Mr. Morton, renamed it Marymount. Have you heard of this before? No, I, I don't think I've heard of that at all. No? Okay. So he established this uh, place, which was quite different from uh, what was going on at Plymouth. And here is Winthrop's uh, description of it. Um, and Morton became lord of misrule and maintained, as it were, a school of atheism. And after they had got some good into their hands and got much by trading with the Indians, they spent it as vainly in quaffing and drinking both wine and strong waters in great excess, and as some reported, ten pound worth in a morning. They also set up a maypole, drinking and dancing about it many days together, inviting the Indian women for their consorts, dancing and frisking together like so many fairies, or furies rather, and worse practices, as if they had anew revived and celebrated the feasts of the Roman goddess Flora, or the beastly practices of the mad Bacchanalians. <laughs> and it goes on. Um, I have never so, heard of this, ever. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, I had heard of Marymount before, but I hadn't read it in Winthrop. Huh. So yes, um, there was this, um, this is around 1628, and it also they're, they're very upset because he teaches the Indians how to shoot guns. Oh no. This is very, this is very disturbing. 
Um, and uh, that went on for a couple of years, and then eventually in 1630, uh, Morton was arrested and he was deported. So that was the end of that little... Arrested escapade. for what? I don't know. Maypole uh, Is that illegal? What's probably, that? Probably everything he was doing was illegal. Probably everything he was doing. And there's there's some account of them coming to arrest him, which is kind of funny because <laughs> apparently everyone was... Oh, here it is, actually. Neither was there any hurt done to any of either side, save that one was so drunk that he ran his own nose upon the point of his sword. Oh, ouch. <laughs> um, but... Nobody else was because they were so drunk they couldn't hold their guns up. <laughs> this is a lot of interesting stuff going on early that yeah. I'm not sure a lot of people, I mean, I certainly didn't realize, you know, the, the, the whole thing that we're interested in is stories and the stories people tell, how they tell them and what impact they have on them. Or on our culture, but also on our psychology. You know, when you hear a story over and over again, you tend to treat it like uh, it has elements of reality, or like if even if it's fiction, you start to treat it like it's true, or, or you start to behave like these things actually happened. And certainly, there's an American myth, I guess you could say. I, I'm really surprised to find out. I mean, we're going to, you know. The the America United States of course didn't exist until uh, you know 1776 Declaration of Independence and everything like that, but we tend to we Americans tend to extend our history pretty much as far back as you know white people arriving here at all, and and this is about that we're talking about you know the very first attempts at colonizing uh, here in in uh, what would become the United States. And already these stories are being told by, well, certain stories, like, um, you know, the stories about America being a, a land where if you're a commoner, or if you're someone uh, who is not nobly born, you can come here and you can do noble things. Right, right, exactly. Um, and that's, and, I mean, that's, yeah, I think most people would say things. that's even the core of, of the American myth, don't you think? Right, yeah. Whereas I think other stories like this one about Marymount, they they get forgotten because yeah. the idea that there would be pagan sort of ceremonies <laughs> yeah. or that um, you know somebody would be befriending you know, the Native Americans and well actually that's only one example. I think an even stronger example is is Roger Williams, who eventually went on to found Rhode Island. Hmm. Right. He actually uh, disputed the whole notion, the whole founding of the colony, because he said um, King Charles could not give something to a group of people that didn't belong to him in the first place. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I think those things have gotten erased. It, but um, in, so in favor of what, though? I mean, we've well, first of all, we we know that that the. Uh, First of all, the, the the land was there were people already here and they were doing just fine. Uh, however, it wasn't as as easygoing as as John Smith seemed to want to make it sound. But also, there uh, what other misconceptions are people getting here as as 
time passes. For example, we've talked about how, um, you know, there is some sentiment today among some people that, well, we need to get back to the Christian values that our our country was founded upon. But but when you look back at the at what actually happened historically, there's quite a bit of uh, disagreement about right. <laughs> exactly. Like whose Christian values do you mean? Yeah, exactly. 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 Um, well, and and on the other side of that, um, if we pick a certain uh, certain kind of Christian values, uh, a lot of the people who want America to go back to being uh, Christian the way it was founded or, or whatever, they, they also believe in democracy. But you go to some of those early Christian founders and they have those disparaging things to say about democracy. So it's it's a the waters back then are a lot muddier. I guess that's what we're trying to say here is that a lot of people today uh, want to think that the American narrative is straightforward when it comes to things like what religion the people had who founded it, uh, what values, uh, political values those people had, um, wh- how exactly what exactly their attitude was toward England when they came. You know, were they fleeing religious persecution? Or were, were they more like yeah. the Puritans who were kind of in the middle where, yes, they, they, they weren't really getting along in England very well, but they weren't wanting to cut themselves off from England or the English church. So, yeah, this, it's, it's a, I think people today tend to want that narrative to be really obvious and clear and clean. And when you really dig in and look at the historical uh, evidence, it's, it's not that at all. No, no, I don't think so. Um, yeah, I actually... Yeah, we we are pretty close to time to end, but um, yeah, maybe I can just very quickly say contrast um, something that John Winthrop says with um, with Roger Williams because I don't think um, I don't think people do know much about the way that. Um, the Puritans really viewed um, the relationship to England, or um, they 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 think the Puritans are the Pilgrims in mm, that right, right. regard, as, as you were saying. They think they also were being persecuted and left, but that's not at all the case. And they really believe in this hierarchy, and that um, this hierarchy sets them apart and makes them better than everyone else. Um, and that we shouldn't have democracy. We shouldn't have. You don't have the same kind of thing that you have in with the Pilgrims and with separatism. That I think, where you have that idea of a direct personal relationship with God, was actually empowering to a lot of people who wanted something that was outside of a hierarchy. Right. Um, and that's why you get. Uh, women being strongly involved, like Anne Hutchinson, and saying, hey, I can speak about religion. Yeah, and yeah. then she gets kicked out because, no, you can't. Yeah. Um, because we we still believe in this uh, model of hierarchy. Um, so Winthrop says, this is um, in the beginning of his sermon, a model of Christian charity. So the, the whole sermon is about charity in the sense of Love from Corinthians. But he begins it by saying that, um, that God 
um, ordered all these differences that is in creatures, but including differences between human beings, for the preservation and good of the whole and the glory of his greatness, that as it is the glory of princes to have many officers, so this great king will have many stewards, counting himself more honored in dispensing his gifts to man by man. So the giving of love and of charity, of being generous to others, is the great giving to those less great. Mm. Which in some ways is, you know, it's a very positive model, but it's, it is based on this idea that there are always going to be these hierarchies, and the best way to treat those hierarchies is that it's sort of like the, the nobility, that the people at the top should take care of the people lower down. And then later when he is, um, clarifying some of that, he does go on to make to clarify that this is really, he's only talking about um, Christians to fellow Christians. He doesn't mean the same thing to um, apply to others outside the faith. Um, and that out of that uh, charity, out of that connection, uh, Christians will be one body and they will become unified and will be as if they are one person. And it's at the end of that that he says, we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. Mm. Uh, sort of unified thinking. You know, we'll all be as one. And I thought that was interesting because um, Roger Williams, I was a couple of things, but this is from his says, from the bloody tenant of persecution for cause of conscience in a conference between truth and peace. I think he's thinking about that city on a hill quote because he says, um, however the proud upon the advantage of a higher earth or ground overlook the poor and cry out, schismatics, heretics, etc. shall blasphemers and seducers escape unpunished, etc., Yet there is a sorer punishment in the gospel for despising of Christ than Moses, even when the despiser of Moses was put to death without mercy. So the point he's making is that um, it's more important to follow Christ's um, model than Moses's, Moses being the lawgiver and trying to point out the people who are the heretics or the blasphemers or the seducers etc. Right. And then this is also from Williams, a letter to the town of Providence. There goes many a ship to sea with many hundred souls in one ship whose weal and woe is common and is a true picture of a commonwealth or a human combination or society. It hath fallen out sometimes that both Papists and Protestants, Jews and Turks may be embarked in one ship upon which supposal I affirm that all the liberty of conscience that ever I pleaded for turns upon these two things, that none of the Papists, Protestants, Jews, or Turks be forced to come to the ship's prayer or worship, nor compelled from their own particular prayers or worship if they practice any. So he, you know, in the ship of state, you don't 
you don't force people of different religions to come to a state religion. Right. Not because of maybe the later um, version of that, which came down in um, the, you know, people like Jefferson or Madison. Um, I think his idea was more that uh, the church should have nothing to do with anything earthly. Mm-hmm. Right. So what um, what are the elements here that we've been talking about that you think kind of carry over into now and that and and what what doesn't and why do you think it doesn't? I think we've maybe uh, well just to repeat them. I think the idea of uh, American exceptionalism comes up in a number of ways. Uh, Sort of, um, and American exceptionalism tied to being Anglo, because it's not about, um, you know, the people coming here believe they are chosen people, and you know, when they go out and they take something, you know, and they dig up stores that belong to somebody else, they're not doing something wrong. God is giving them the fruits of the land. Right. Right. Um, so that I think that's one of the ways that uh, American exceptionalism comes out. There's also this that strong belief in a kind of that we believe that in coming to the United States we were escaping from any kind of hierarchies, and it was all about freedom, um, liberty, justice for all. But um, the model that really eventually triumphed in the Mass Bay Colony because the pilgrims were eventually absorbed into uh, the Mass Bay Colony and the whole thing reverted to direct rule by the king by 1691. Right. Um, So, you know, what really was the way that that whole area of New England was um, ruled was in this very strict uh, theocracy idea, and, and people who didn't agree got kicked out. Right. Um, actually, I, I believe Winthrop and Roger Williams were friends, and Winthrop wrote to Williams and said, you know, they're coming to arrest you, so better skedaddle. <laughs> and the, the people who are kind of outliers, they they are definitely there, but I don't think they wound up either strongly remembered or in really strong uh, positions of power, like Roger Williams and his belief that uh, the land actually belonged to the Indians. Um, And um, he also had some ideas about indentured servitude and slavery, (laughs) which were not in keeping with uh, the way things were being run. Freedom of conscience, that everyone should be allowed to uh, worship whatever they wanted to worship without interference. I think that comes down from both the pilgrims and from Roger Williams, who are, they're somewhat similar. So that idea does persist as an ideal and yet, there's also this part of the United States that seems to long for having a state-run religion. Mm. And we're escaping 
we think from nobility and we get to make up who we are, but <laughs> um, you know, some of that is not you know, it's it's not truth telling. No. It's, it's yeah. Yeah, you you ignore you have to ignore a lot to believe that that's absolutely so. In fact, it when you hear it, when you hear politicians say it, it it sounds a lot like John Smith and every <laughs> the way he was trying to sell New England to everybody. It it sounds like hyperbole. It sounds way over the top, but it it matches very much what you hear politicians say today and what you hear people seem to to believe. I mean, uh, you know, certainly a person has opportunities here in the United States that they don't have other places, but but it's it's an American myth, really, to say, well, you just have to show up, work hard. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't work hard, and not be not be idle. Yeah, yeah. And um, if if you don't get whatever it is you want, you're probably just not working hard enough. Right. Exactly. And if you get everything you want. However hard you were working, I guess that was enough. <laughs> yeah. Even if you weren't working hard at all, you must have deserved it somehow, Providence and so on. Yeah, there's, there's, it's just, it's just not realistic, but it is the way people, uh, some people talk and, and some people seem to think in American culture. And it, it's very much the way politicians talk. I mean, you, whenever yeah. you hear, uh, speeches from any politician trying to sort of get everybody excited about America, they'll, They'll speak in sort of over-the-top ways like this. And you, you, you could just shrug it off uh, and like, okay, there's a politician giving a speech, just like you do hearing John Smith talk about it. But uh, <laughs> I, think, I, think that, um, I think there's a lot of misconception out there in our culture, and I think it's kind of hurtful to a lot of people and to a lot of classes of people. That's another thing. Is um, Well, there's, there is this kind of... Um and it's interesting because we were talking about the diversity of all the different groups. I and mean, Smith, I don't even know what his religious background is. I don't think religion was very important yeah, to him. Yeah, right, right. Um, but he and Bradford and uh, Winthrop really all have in common this this idea that um, there is something about their coming to the United States, or it's not the United States that time there's something about them coming to um, America which you know God has ordained and that they are special people um, there or they are a special group of people they're set apart um, what they do is always going to be right and I, I think with Smith you also get somewhat the the same way that you do actually going back to the the cowboy heroes for a little bit, that the proof that uh, morality lies with, um, you know, physical uh, triumph. Yeah. If you triumph over others physically, this is proof that you're doing the right thing. Mm. Whereas, you know, if you are weak in any way or, you know, you get wounded, like we were talking about in the last episode, that's a sign of moral weakness. Yeah, right. Well, let's see. Next time, I think I want to... There were some things I had to leave out this time. Maybe we can get back to them, but I did want to move on to maybe talking 
about um, Franklin and Jefferson and Thomas Paine and some of those famous fathers. Getting up into the 18th, late 18th century, yeah, early United States. So, to look forward to next time. Yes. Next time on Grapevine. Same um, grape time, <laughs> same, same grape, grape channel. channel. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that I, I didn't get to speak to at all was uh, the poet Anne Bradstreet, because um, just to have somebody who was a more leading a more day-to-day existence in the colonies, and, and she wrote about her experiences in poetry. And, uh, maybe we can add that in before we go on. Okay. All right. Well, good to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you, too. <laughs> Grapevine is a production of Aether Theater. Music is provided by Chris Snook.